I'd, I'd like to introduce our panel today who will be answering some spiritual questions in order to help make the spiritual path more real for each of us. First, I'd like to thank each of you for your devotional energy. That without this, uh, this week wouldn't have been quite the same. So if you don't feel like you really played a role and weren't up here doing something, know that your devotion is precious and needed and you being here is a great gift to everyone. So thank you. Today we have Nayaswami Asha, Daiva, and Parvati, and Riman. They all serve in various aspects of Ananda communities, and I'm sure they're joyful to be here today and offer their insight and wisdom due to many years of growing attunement. I would like to share just a reading from Swami Kriyananda that I, this morning I felt could really be beneficial to people who are going out of Ananda tomorrow or the next day or today and that perhaps it will be beneficial in being able to make real, really strong and hold on to these deep blessings that you've received this week. Somebody asked Swamiji once, when do you feel most in tune with Master? And these are his words. I have found that I'm most in tune with him when I don't have the thought of what I'm getting from him but dwell rather on the thought of what I'm giving to him. When with my whole energy I give him joy, appreciation, openness, service, in short, my very self, I receive from him the greatest energy and blessings. It has nothing to do with pleasing his ego, nor obviously does he need my joy. It is rather that that open feeling in myself puts me onto the wavelength on which he himself functions because his own energy is always directed towards giving, not taking. If I can lift myself at least somewhat up to that giving level rather than thinking only of gaining for myself, I am able to receive much more. On a lower taking level, I have found that his energy only trickles down slowly, as it were. I haven't exposed myself fully to its flow. So I think that that's very beneficial, that, that we all remember that when we go back out into this big, wide, crazy world, that we're meant to give Master's light, not guard it, not protect it and be afraid of the restlessness, but to bring the light, to bring the strength, and to give to give whatever we can through smiles, kindness, joy, love. And uh, I just wanted to offer that as perhaps a, an encouragement for when you do leave, because this world will shake you up when you leave again, and it will shake me up. And if we remember that we're here to give Master's light, he will reinforce our own inner power. So I guess I'm going to be standing up here the, the whole time. <laughs> um, so Asha, let's begin with you today. Now, last year we had it set up slightly differently, but I, okay. I think this can work. Okay. The, the first <laughs> <laughs> and this is for $64,000? Uh. <laughs> Full disclosure, I might know what he's going to say. <laughs> Asha, you've just completed writing a biography of Swami Kriyananda's life. 
we've been talking this week about personal transformation. How is writing this book a transformative experience for you? Uh, in five minutes. <laughs> when Swami was in his body, um, uh, he was my pole star, still is. But when he was in his physical body, there was a physical place where his body was. And I moved away from Ananda village in 1986, and he lived here many years longer, then went to Europe, then went to India. He visited in Palo Alto, where I lived, often, but he was also often in many other places. Without even being aware of it, wherever he was, was for me the geographic center of the planet. And I, I didn't realize the extent to which it was until he left his body, and this exceedingly disconcerting feeling came to me, which it took me a little while to identify, and I realized that there was no anchor point in this world. It was just, it wasn't that he was gone, but the manifestation was gone, and therefore the anchor point was gone insofar as I lived in a material world. I'll back up a little bit. A few years before Swami died, people, someone asked me, I was asked more than once, but on one occasion I was asked, what do you think is going to happen when Swami dies? I said, well, insofar as it is possible for the leader of an organization like this one to prepare for his passing, Swamiji has done everything he could, creating an enormous amount of autonomy among our different entities, uh, passing over responsibilities, giving over to Jyotish and Devi most of his responsibilities while he was even still living with us. But I remarked then that, nonetheless, in the same way that I realized later he was the geographic center, nonetheless it was like all the threads of Ananda and all the threads of people's consciousness were somehow still held in the the fact of his still being inside a body and breathing. And even though we were all acting very much on an autonomous way, there was still a sense of being tethered. By no means did that feel like a limitation, but it was just a fact. And I had the feeling that when he exited that body, that the, the lack of that uh, single focus would actually disperse all that energy in an enormous wave and that every individual would suddenly be able, at least potentially, uh, to be the center of that inspiration. Um, this is why masters don't live forever, ex with the exception of Babaji and Agastya and a few of them, because they, they inspire and implant and create and then it has to work a little differently after that. And of course, it's hard for us to realize that Swami Kriyananda was not quite 26 when Master left his body, after a mere three and a half years. So the extraordinary commitment of discipleship that all of us witnessed through his life was done almost entirely without the physical presence of Master. And Master was so present for him that it, that doesn't cross our minds very often, does it? So, because the Kalidasi is asking about this project that I just worked on, this was my life assignment. 
I was 24 when Swami suggested that I should write about his life. And uh, I worried about it every day. It wasn't like, oh, yes, sure, I'll just do this. He did have the grace to say, not yet. Thank you. <laughs> but I, I literally worried about it every day because I just didn't know how I was going to do it. And I started working on it a few years ago. But I was trying to do it in the midst of everything else. And I knew I was writing, but I was writing uh, in what I called a mental way. I, I wrote something. Swami trained me to write over many decades, and it was not always an easy process. I wrote a little story once, and he said, well, it's fine, it's mental, he said like that. He said, you can publish it if you want to, it was sort of like that. And I, I remembered, but I didn't understand. Finally, the opportunity came to me to go into absolute seclusion. I was way up in northern Washington at that point without even internet or anything, wonderfully isolated. And when I was finally completely alone, then Swami began to talk to me. And I believe he'd been talking to me the whole time. I just felt that my mind was too busy to hear him. Although the woman who wrote the book, The Color Purple, said she tried to write it in New York City, but the characters finally got her to understand, it's too noisy here. We can't talk to you. So she went out to some southern city in the country. So I was completely alone with Swamiji. And I wrote the story that I had lived from the notes I'd taken in my own handwriting. Um, it's, it's, I wrote it, ended up writing it very impersonally, so it's really not my story. But I'd lived through it. But I didn't understand any of it until I was quiet enough that he could talk to me. So, naturally, knowing that that's even possible um, sets a whole other standard for our lives. And once I came out of seclusion, there's a lot of other noise. And I know he's still talking to me, but I'm not always able to hear him as clearly. But it's certainly easier. But the realization um, from one's own experience that time and space and death is no obstacle to consciousness. Um, we can say that a lot of times, but if you experience it even once, what it does is it sets the standard for you. And then everything after that gets to be measured by that. So what I feel like this experience has done for me is it's given me a, a tremendous sense of the possible, which makes me restless now with anything less. Um, I don't live in it by any means all the time, but knowing that it can be done once, knowing that it can be done once by any of us, tells us then that that's the standard we have to aspire to. Thank you, Ashaji. In case you don't know, there is a gold mine on the internet of wisdom, and it is called nayaswamiasha.org. And I have received so very much from this website that I can't help but plug it at this moment. <laughs> Not just Asha, but the entire Palo Alto Sangha just does so much. Such a beautiful light that they shine. So thank you, Ashaji. And uh, now, Daiva, let's ask you a question. If devotion is such a critical aspect of meditation, how can I cultivate it? Great question. 
and particularly good because when I came to the path, devotion was not a natural um, experience for me. At least I didn't know how to identify it. And a lot of the things um, that people did at Ananda to express devotion, I found distancing uh, and put into an area of questioning. I, I, in fact, the first time I ran into Ananda, I was very earth tone. And I was, uh, you know, organic farmer and many other things. And uh, I came to an event that Swami Kriyananda was holding and everybody was in pastel colors and singing the same chants and reciting um, responsive prayers. And I thought, this is really odd. And, um, but gradually, and, and I lived a lot in the mind. Um, gradually, the heart began to open as I started to see in their eyes um, something that I wanted. I decided to look up devotion last night because I have it as a living experience now, but I, I still don't understand it or didn't until last night. Devotion is defined as love, loyalty, and enthusiasm. Isn't that lovely? Everybody yearns for love. Everybody has an ideal that they aspire to, that they feel will give them the love they seek. Part of the theme of this week has been, and um, Ananta spoke to it beautifully yesterday, you know, we are all brothers and sisters made from God's light uniquely, and God is expressing through each one of us. So everybody's devotion will be very, very personal. And whether you have a scientific approach or a karma yoga approach or a, uh, a, a heart-centered approach to life, devotion is still cultivatable. Devotion is still something that's a very real thing. You know, think of the scientist and the mental disciplines that they have to do, but a true scientist loves the truth. And they are loyal to the search for truth and to parsing it out against all the things that seem uh, so real but are evanescent and not, not lasting. Um, think of the karma yogi who just loves to be engaged in the battle of life, engaged in activity and doing. So I would say part of the answer is start to look deeper inside and understand how love, loyalty, and enthusiasm express through your nature and then feed those. Give them license, but give them license to um, be harnessed to something that's lasting and enduring. Hang around other people that have a similar nature, but have a deep vestment in life. You know, um, love is obvious to all of us. Loyalty, Master said, is the first law of God. And I'll speak to this again. I've got another question. We, you know, a lot of the people who speak during this week get the topics a month or two ahead of time. We get the great benefit of getting them about 36 hours ahead of our talk. So there's not a lot of time to, to chew on it, but it's actually um, fun and fresh this way. But we'll talk to the loyalty thing a little bit um, in another question, and I'll come back to it. Enthusiasm really simply just boils down to entheos, in God doing whatever we do in the presence of God with a commitment and an open heart to allowing that light to flow through us, being completely free and unfettered in what we do, offering it up to the point between the eyebrows, offering it up to life, offering it up to fulfillment. Uh, and then cultivate, you know, chant, uh, hang out with others that are involved in an upward life, um, have a lot of fun with devotion, um, 
It's about all I have to offer. Thank you. Thank you, Diva. Purnaya Swami Parvati, can you think of some incidents with Swamiji that were especially inspiring and educational for you? Swami's mere presence was deeply inspiring and educational for me throughout my entire life. It's so rare to meet someone that from the very beginning you just feel he's an old friend, but not on a familiar level, on a deeply, deeply spiritual level. And uh, I would say I was just always in awe uh, of Swami and how he gave himself completely to all of us. I mean, very personally, too. His, he shared, in other words, with all of us in very personal ways. And really, his life was so, in one way you might say tumultuous, but it was so, um, he was getting a lot done in this lifetime. And uh, one of the things that I've always deeply appreciated is that he, um, when he went through changes in his own personal life, he took the whole community with him through that change. And I'm thinking specifically of 1981, when his personal life, he had been a Swami. I was in the monastery. I'd been there for, I don't know, six years or so, you know, so it was monastic and, you know, really focused in that way, which that was an easy thing for me. That just resonated, of course. You know, I hadn't been a householder in a while, so. <laughs> but, uh, but all of a sudden... Swami was in a relationship. And it's like, what? <laughs> I mean, for most ashrams, which we are, we're both a community and an ashram, the upheaval that that could cause would be incredible. <laughs> but, and it, and it did personally cause that upheaval, but I have to say, from the very beginning, I, I kind of intuitively knew that those upheavals were a good thing because it's how you grow. It's how, as I say, the monastic thing, no sweat. You know, that was not an upheaval for me. That was a natural course of events, uh, being part of the monastery here early on. But the householder part of that and watching Swami, his energy outwardly express itself in this very different way. I mean, much more. He was very impersonal in those first eight or nine years that I was here. And that, that resonated with me. I didn't have a problem with that. Other people had a big problem with that. That was hard for them. But uh, all of a sudden, he was in a relationship. And you know what he did? He, during, from my memory, it might be a little faulty, but he, um, during a number of months, had a weekly satsang here at the Expanding Light in the Temple, and he walked us through, talked us through, shared with us the process that he was going through internally so that we could come along with him. He didn't just say, oh, now I'm doing this, <clears throat> I hope you like it. He really explored what a householder life was about, 
what a marriage was about, what personal relationships were about in the context of this deeply spiritually committed path of self-realization, because it is deep and very committed. And so for me personally, I thought, wow, what a great opportunity. I don't understand this yet, but I will. <clears throat> and so what I would meditate and go to the satsangs and, and all of that. And then I gradually came to what, and it actually came pretty quickly. What I found was that I really <clears throat> wanted to observe him in this new role and feel what his consciousness was. And I thought, if his consciousness feels the same, no problem. Because the outer manifestation, we all go through a lot of different things, but that was very important to me. That was the rock that I had uh, planted my spiritual life on since I came, 1971-72. And I thought, if he's going through this tremendous change, but if his consciousness remains the same, wow, what an amazing adventure to be part of. And I found that that was true. I didn't feel Swami really had changed inwardly at all, not at all. But the outward expression was now showing us and educating us and helping us to understand how to relate in a, in a more personal way, what that looked like. You know, when I first came here, I thought, wow, I mean, I want to know what it looks like to live a spiritual life every day. I went to Southern California and all the shrines down there and all of that, and I knew right away that it wasn't going to happen there. But when I came here, it was a community, and really what I felt was it was just an extension of the autobiography. When I first came here, I had just read the autobiography and uh, came to visit and, you know, heard Swami do everything on a weekend evening program and, and then Sunday service and the fire ceremony and talk to people and have lunch and all that. But it was, it was in motion. It was the spiritual life in motion. And all the people that were around, the ones that I could see relating to him that were close. And uh, I just thought, wow, it's really quite astounding that we get modeled this, this example. But for Swami, he was, as Asha said, always the core, always that place from which to relate. As, as Swami himself said, uh, when people would say unusual things to him at Mount Washington, he'd say, well, did Master say that? <laughs> and if he did, then he'd, then he'd try to readjust his thinking to encompass that. And that was pretty much it here for me and for many others. So I would say that is one of the most deeply uh, grateful things that I have about Swami's life. The other thing I remember when Kalidas was reading the letter from Swami about Master and Swami is that I felt that same thing from him, that if you, because we're all, we were always preparing for him to leave the body. 
I mean, really, when I came here, I remember in 1973, just going home after a satsang and thinking, oh, God, I hope he doesn't leave his body soon. <laughs> it must have been from a past life, you know, because it was very early on. But I thought the only way to remedy that fear is to become more like him. And so the whole spiritual life, in my understanding, is that we become like that ideal that we're looking at. And Swami made that possible for all of us. He flowed through us. And I remember saying to him one time, because I was kind of close to him, but a little not like others, you know, but, but really always when he did something, I was there. I was drawing from him always. But I said to him, because he had sent me to San Francisco with Ram and Diana to run the big center there, replacing Jyotish and Devi, which was like, oh my God, really? 45-room mansion, you know, middle of Pacific Heights, San Francisco, running the house, yeah, 21 to 30 people there, living there all their lives, spiritually, a center where we taught. But I said to him after I came back uh, a little while later, I said, you know, Swami, I feel much closer to you than I ever had from doing this. And he just smiled. He didn't say a word. But, but because I felt him with me, I couldn't have done that. How could I have done that? But he, he sent me there. And so he w it was his energy flowing through. This is what you need to do now. This is how it's going to work. And, you know, you make your mistakes. Oh, that was something that I did, you know. But, uh, but just that, that closeness to, to him really came to me uh, by acting as a channel for him. And I remember as Asha was speaking, when he died... I just felt so much joy because I thought, as she was saying, and it's true, to the extent that each of us draw on that and live that in our own lives, I thought his joy and his presence, wow, it's here and it is so dynamic and so wonderful. So that's my special story. Thank you, Parvati. And I just want to comment that it is, uh, it's amazing for being a young person here at Ananda to see how Swami's energy has spread into so many lights that we are too drawing from. And that actually Swami is so much more accessible now because of the attunement of the many years that you've spent drawing from Him. Now we can draw Him through you. So I appreciate that. Hopefully that's how it works. <laughs> so, Nayaswami Hriman, the next question is for you. And that is, uh, what does spiritual progress look like in one's life? By the way, did you introduce yourself? I did not, but I realized, and it's too late now. <laughs> I'm yes. Kalidas. Is a world famous astrologer, Kalidas. <laughs> what what's the question again? <laughs> what does spiritual progress look like? Or how can we know that we're that we're progressing? Either one, if you, if that feels better. Sure. 
for many years, many of you know I had the opportunity and privilege to teach the Art and Science of Raja Yoga course. And at the very end of that course, he asks this very same question. I'll come back to that. Swami Sri Yukteswar Yogananda's guru was noted for saying simply, despite all of his esoteric wisdom, learn to behave. Now, I don't know where the next quote comes from exactly. I haven't researched it. I know Swamiji would use it from time to time. I suppose Yogananda, Master, did so also. But it goes something like this. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. And I've pondered that over the years, um, wondering what that meant. And over the years, being on this path, etc., I've seen where outside our communities, I've had the opportunity to meet many people like we all do, and I've met and read about wonderful people, virtuous, humanitarian, kind, on and on. And yet, I think of that great story at the end of the war of Kurukshetra where Bhishma, representing ego, is on the battlefield. He's filled with arrows to such a degree, his body doesn't even touch the ground. He has the boon which you and I do, to surrender his life, which for us means our ego, when he's ready. And so it is that, you know, the chapters before that last chapter in the Art and Science talks about the, the chakras and the different colors and sounds and lights, all this esoteric stuff, which everybody loves because um, doesn't really, they don't have to do anything about it, I, I think. And then step 14, you know, Vedanta and all this wonderful philosophy, and I can talk philosophy to beat the band, but, but then he says, what are the signs of spiritual progress? And if you study the lives of saints and some of the direct disciples of Yogananda, we have examples of something Swamiji would say from time to time. He said, when the sun um, when stained glass windows are lit from without, they brighten. And so when the energy rises and we advance spiritually, what is lit up are the panes of glass of our own karma and our tests. And so it is that we have to be careful not to judge ourselves, what to say other people, by our outward forms of behavior. The signs of spiritual progress are simply an inside job. Yes, we have to learn to behave. We, I mean, to whatever extent we might be a schmuck, we should try not to be a schmuck. But I know a lot of devotees who, starting with myself, who can be schmucks. So let's, you know, let's do what we can. But that's not the real solution, nor is it the real test. The real test is something really uh, starting with you, only you, but that's not wholly true. When you live in community, when you um, have the privilege and opportunity to be with those with great intuition and, and a sense of rapport with you, um, and you know, having lived in these communities for what amounts to most of my adult life, I'm approaching 108 now, uh, <laughs> You develop a certain amount of, you know, you meditate with the same people every day in our ashrams and so forth, and you have a pretty good sense, it seems, on how they're doing. So yes, people can reflect back to you, but really it's, it's a question of increasing calmness, 
increasing wisdom. When I started on the path, I was very much left brain. I still have a left brain, but it's receded somewhat. Um, and being around Swamiji in those years, I, I, you know, I couldn't imagine myself having the kind of intuition it seemed that he had. But now, I don't know, I mean, I can't live, I just assume I will know things that I need to know, I mean, whether imperfectly or not, but I depend on that. And so what I'm saying is, that's just one example from my own life, but you can tell from your own inner state, the degree of your anxiety, nervousness, irritation, uh, anger is a big one, but I'll tell you the litmus test that I, I feel Swamiji gave us that has been very valuable in my life. I think it's in Sadhu Beware, that wonderful book he gives on really precisely the subject, how to live. The litmus test simply is this. How do you handle critique, real or imagined? Are you self-defensive? Do you go through all this grinding stuff in your head about he said, she said, and what if, and so forth? Or do you calmly reflect? Can there be some truth in that? And if you can honestly say no, can you let it go? And so the signs of spiritual progress have to do with your own development, your own consciousness, your own energy. And each of us has a unique path. And probably one of the greatest pitfalls of sangha, satsangha, of association with other souls, is the innate tendency to compare ourselves. I, hear, I mean, we look at the saints, the masters, or some of our friends, of course, we, this is how it works. But the dark side, the downside of that, is of course to compare ourselves unfavorably. And then when we get tired of doing that, we flip over and we start judging others. And so signs of spiritual progress have much to do with things like anger, irritation, judgment, and critique. And one of the greatest ways of working on that is what we're doing here together this week. Environment is stronger than will. And when we speak of saints, when we speak of, of qual spiritual qualities and we reflect those to each other, we go away with that little portable paradise that we can draw on, as others have, have said. It's an inside job. Great answer, Himanji. Thank you very much. The next question is for you, Asha. I have recently become aware of a subtle tendency in me to blame the others in my life for any challenges or problems that arise. It conveniently takes the workload off my shoulders. <laughs> but then surely I am not working through my karma, am I? What now? <laughs> The hardest, uh, I, I think the hardest principle to accept on the spiritual path is the absoluteness of the law of karma. It's just so annoying. <laughs> and, I mean, really, even for people coming on to the path, I often tell them, just put that one on the shelf until you're ready for it. It's not only just personal, it's global. You look at all the suffering in the world, it, 
you know, and there's this is the way it's stated that our own the magnetism of our own inner reality, the the vrittis in the chakras, draw to us the magnetism that is necessary for us to work through whatever those vrittis are. I generate the magnetism that draw to us the outward experiences that are appropriate for us to gradually resolve those vrittis and be able to move forward without our energy always being, I'll use Peter's word, hijacked by some other priority that we may have intellectually rejected, but the, we, we may have unplugged the fan, but the fan is still spinning. So you, you have to start with the premise that God is in charge. You have to start with the premise that I'm here for self-realization, not for self-aggrandizement. I'm not here to be comforted. I'm here to be freed. And somewhere along the line, we make a commitment to that. And then ever thereafter, we have to renew that commitment. And we have to renew that commitment about every 30 seconds. <laughs> Sometimes even every 15, depending on how intense the situation is. Because Maya is really clever. And what happens is, sometimes people are causing your problems. I mean, they're behaving... I'll use Freeman's word, like schmucks. My favorite tests are the ones where I'm actually right, you know, where they really are wrong, and I am right, and they are behaving badly. And once I get that all established, I realize how irrelevant it is. Because did you think God would send you a fool? You would see right through the fool. He has to send you someone as clever as you are whatever that might be, because otherwise you won't be persuaded. So he sends you people who are very, very convincing in their capacity to persuade you that they're actually doing something to you. Master has a really interesting phrase. He says, because things in time seem to happen one after another, we have the mistaken belief that one thing causes another. Isn't that interesting? You did something, I hurt. Therefore, what you did caused me to hurt. And it's, it's, as I say, Maya puts a really clever thing on it, so it really looks really good, and we can use that left brain really big to explain it all. But the fact of the matter is, if we did not have within us the capacity to be lured away from our true nature, nothing that anybody ever did could lure us away from it. So that when, when one first gets on the spiritual path, we have a tremendous interest, and it's a lingering interest in past lives, in our horoscopes, and, and you know, I, I, like many others, have tinkered in those things, and I recommend the soon-to-be world-famous astrologer to my right, you know, as being very, very helpful in helping us to understand ourselves better. But one of the things, uh, uh, specifically, I'll speak of Kalidas, but specifically about uh, astrological reading, is it gives you the principles. Because it's not the specifics, it's the principles. Maybe your horoscope, which is, your horoscope is the external picture of your chakras. Uh, Swami said yoga and astrology are the same science. The heavens represent the chakras, and so you're born at the moment when this world matches this world. So you can understand the inner world from understanding that world if you have the intuition to do it. And 
what happens then is things happen that highlight the limitations of our internal world. And it's part of the game that we first try, just like Kriman was saying, how do you behave when you're criticized? And that is the measure of our spiritual progress. Is my first thought, that can't be true, it must be your fault. And just as part of the question, I'm not working out my karma. Well, you're always working out your karma. Sometimes you're just working it out badly. <laughs> because one of the ways we work out our karma is to make terrible mistakes and just fall on our heads. You know, the, um, the experience I had of many months in seclusion working on this book about Swamiji was also because it's a, it's a first-hand account. So it's really not my life because not, that's not the point. But in order to write the book, I had to live through my own life. And it, it was not always happy. It, and, and it wasn't that my experiences weren't happy, but what... I made a lot of mistakes. I mean, how, how simple can you say it? We make a lot of mistakes. And so one of the mistakes we make, the biggest mistake we make, is to believe Maya. And one of Maya's best techniques is you said that, now I hurt, you shouldn't have said that. You did that, I hurt, you shouldn't have done that. And then we work really hard to make that person understand my reality so you will be different. This is actually the Vaisha level of the caste. The, the second caste, the Vaisha level, it's called, it's the merchant level. What that means is it's always an exchange. And the characteristic of the Vaisha level is, if I could just get the world in order, then I wouldn't suffer anymore. And, you know, that it, it, we think, oh, I'm not really a Vaisha, I'm a, I'm a Kshatriya, I give. But every time we think that we're suffering because of something outside ourselves, we have slipped down into the Vaisha level, and it's an exchange. You're supposed to be nice to me, and then I'm happy. You're not nice to me, so now I'm deprived. Is this easy? Oh my, no. Not at all. I remember I was reading, actually, in my notes, when this community burned in 1976. Swami was in Hawaii working on the path, as it were, and he came back, and he was talking to us in a community meeting, and he was just so uh, realistic. He said, this is a traumatic experience. This is a trauma we don't have to pretend this is not a trauma. This is a trauma. You know, something has happened that is really going to challenge us. That doesn't mean we have to die in it. That doesn't mean we have to worship it. But we can say it out loud. So other people, especially people who are close to us, you know, they're sent by Maya and they're real good at it. And we've probably been doing it for a really long time. So they have a way... You know, it, it, with the best of intentions, they just find the weak spot, sometimes quite casually. You know, they're just walking by and they'll just kick you in the weak spot, you know. They don't even know it, they're just keeping going. So don't say to yourself, oh, I should be different. That's, the, that's really the worst mistake you can make. Because to overcome the hurts of the heart, that's a lifetime that's a lifetime project. And one of the things I learned, to go back to question number one, for me, was how deeply sensitive Swami was 
and how profoundly he felt everything. It was convenient for me to believe for a long time that he didn't, because that was my approach to the spiritual life. I'm just fine, you know, but I wasn't just fine. I just had a lot of willpower. So I thought when you get to be really advanced spiritually, you become on some level insensitive, because that looked a lot easier to me. And it took me a long time to really believe that far from being insensitive, the more spiritually advanced you become, you feel everything. In the life of Ramakrishna, somebody kicked a cat and Ramakrishna had a bruise on his back. People were walking on the grass and he was writhing in pain. I mean, really, literally, he was extreme. But nonetheless, because you become part of everything and you feel it from inside of them, not just inside yourself. So the power of overcoming these traumas or, or even just inconveniences, whatever they are, is to actually be able to see it for what it is, recognize our own responsibility, but then become bigger than that experience. And that's, that's quite different. Because if people are unkind and betray you and are disloyal, certainly Swami had a lot of that, you know, they are. And if you're a sensitive person, you feel it. And it doesn't serve to say, it didn't happen or I shouldn't feel this way. What you have to say is, can I still love God in spite of all of this? Can I still open my heart to life and to Master in spite of all of this? And you see, that was Swami's actual example, is that no matter what happened, he never closed down, he never went secretive, he never got smaller. The harder he was challenged, the bigger he got, so that the black spot was both still there, became a smaller and smaller part of his consciousness. And that's what it is that we're being asked to do at all times. That's why the masters are so childlike, because they are not afraid of anything. How can you tell when you overcome a karma? Someone asked Swami. He said, when you're not afraid of it anymore. That's really something to think about. Are you afraid of being tortured, imprisoned, betrayed, disappointed, alone? If we're afraid, there's still karma there. So guess what? God will give you another chance. <laughs> A question for Nayaswami Daiva. Where do you see Ananda in 50 years? <laughs> These questions come from the audience mostly, so. Well, I'm not likely to be around to see. It's an interesting and compelling question. And I think there are uh, rather than what do I see, I see possibilities. And I see them unfolding every day in front of us. Um, there's, a, there's an old saying, um, all that it takes for evil to prevail is for good people to do nothing. 
And I don't know who was it, I think it was Asha. Somebody said, you know, we have to choose about every 15 seconds uh, or 30 seconds what we're going to do, what we're going to tune into, unless, of course, we have the power of love, loyalty, and enthusiasm fueling our lives at a very fundamental level. But Ananda is, as an organization or as a physical reality, is a very small footprint on this planet right now. And it exists because of a choice that people have made. You know, I was thinking about it. Um, we have, each one of us, um, several ways we can pick up our lives. We can, and much of the world is doing this, we can pick up our lives by simply just being involved in our karma and indulging our karma. We can have tendencies, we all have tendencies, and we can just feed them and see where they go. And of course the masters and Swamiji and the path tell us that um, it ends with an empty bag, but everybody's involved in their own life experiment, in their own laboratory of their own lives, and that's a choice. And a lot of the people on the planet are making that choice, and we're seeing the fruits of it everywhere. And if that continues to prevail, Ananda will simply vanish like Brigadoon. It'll just have been here, it'll have been a lovely dream, it'll have been a possibility, and in 50 years it'll just be um, uh, either gone or a shell of what we experience. You know, there's a second choice, and more and more people on the planet, it's still a very small minority, but more and more people on the planet are beginning to choose this, and that is to take their karma and invite God in. They're beginning to spiritualize their lives. They're beginning to say, you know, come on this ride with me. And it's a precious thing. It's a, it's a huge step forward from simply indulging, pushing the pendulum of your karma, the, the motion of, of what drives you, um, where you hope happiness will come from, uh, just indulging that, saying, God, let's do this together and see what happens. And if um, the world does more of that, Ananda may remain somewhat as it is. It may remain um, a beautiful footprint. Um, I'm holding the book Cities of Light, and what you have is Ananda Village as a city of light, and an uh, example of what's possible. You have a handful of other places on the planet where um, that's been expressed to some degree. And you have a growing movement of a sense of that something's possible in that. But in 50 years, Ananda will just be this. You know, it's been already five years since Swami Kriyananda passed. And, you know, the power of his life, you know, the thing that was amazing, one of the things that was amazing about his life, is he just never stopped putting out energy and feeding a sense of possibility in his own life and in everybody around them. And the third choice we have, as I see it, is for those who can find their way with this, to not indulge their karma wantonly, to not just simply invite God into the pattern of their life and the tendencies they already have, 
but with full devotion, full love, full loyalty, and full enthusiasm to open their lives and say, you know, I have these tendencies. I thought for incarnations that this might be where happiness would come from, but I'm not so convinced that just going along for the ride, even if you're with me, that it's really going to do the job. What would you do if you were here in this body, in this mind, in this heart, and in this soul, right here, right now? What would you do? And then to offer, to self, be so self-offering into the question of what would God do through you? It's what's made Ananda more than one guy with a beautiful dream walking around the planet trying to convince people. You know, all of us have a different karma. Every one of us has got a different karma if we're on this planet and we're not liberated. We all have tendencies. We all have dogs and cats and family and friends and houses and jobs that we just adore. And we're sure that they feed us with love and wholeness and give us what we're looking for. And every one of us ends in the same place. We all end up leaving the body and leaving it all behind anyway. Some small group of people said, you know, I'm going to give it up anyway. Let's give it up now. Let's just say, whatever you want, Lord, whatever you want, Master, whatever you want. And out of that has come Ananda Village, Ananda, Seattle, Palo Alto, Portland, Sacramento, Assisi, L.A., India. If there's enough people who feel inspired by that possibility, something else is possible. And instead of a city of light, I'd like to read from this for just a moment and end with this. Swami opens this book, and it was important that it was written as Cities of Light, but I'd like to expand that now. Imagine a planet, a beautiful planet, such as a planet of tomorrow ought to be. Imagine small residential areas within the planet, surrounded by beautiful parkland for residential enjoyment. <clears throat> Imagine a planet where human values are given first importance, where the desire for joy and harmony and love are looked upon as needs every bit as practical as material considerations. Imagine a place where creative life and people's goal is to improve their understanding, a planet where residents offer one another help constructively, compassionately, and not by confrontation in their efforts to improve themselves, a place, a planet, where self-improvement is not approached with tension or an attitude of guilt, but joyfully, serenely, and with the understanding that neither guilt nor tension ever helped a tree to grow. And on and on and on. Ananda, if we, enough people, give themselves over wholeheartedly and say, Master, do this through me, could be the pole star of this planet, the guiding light. Because Ananda, remember, Ananda isn't a place, it's not an organization. It's the movement of joy that brings us back to God. Thank you.
Thank you, Daiva. Wonderful. For Nayaswami Parvati, how can I know when I fall in love with someone that the love will be real and lasting? Well, I actually think that I know the answer to that. Um, You can't go beyond where you're at, and love has to be divine. And so I know it's about a person, but if you don't start with your love for God and deep commitment to that love for God and the spiritual life, Relationships are tricky, very tricky. So, and the reason that I say that is we married someone, oh, 10 years ago or so up in uh, uh, Nova Scotia. Nova Scotia, right. Yeah, we took a, it was December, and for some reason we committed to going to Nova Scotia in the middle of winter, going through Chicago, waiting there for a long time while the planes were getting de-iced and making it to Nova Scotia. But anyway, it was a very sweet wedding. We were there just for a couple of nights, and for those that you remember, it was, uh, what's his name? Nolan, Nolan and Alicia. Nolan used to work here in the kitchen and in the summers. But anyway, it was a very sweet wedding and all of that. But it just made me, again, you're, you're in those moments because everybody there pretty much was not on this path. It was just Nolan and Alicia. And, uh, but, you know, we always say a little something in weddings. But just looking at them and thinking about their life I just thought of two things that to me really make a marriage, and in particular, talking about the love of your life, uh, possible. And that is respect and um, loyalty. Not loyalty. Um, anyway, respect is one. It's more impersonal, that there's a little distance between two people that live together, that there's always that that feeling that, and Pranava and I have interesting little phrases that we say to each other, you know, and we're doing something maybe a little off and wait till you get to know me. And my response is, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> because that distance, it's what allows I think the oil and the flow of freedom between two people who are living very closely together in a marriage. And so um, that idea of respect, to me, allows that distance. And love grows out of that. Love grows. It gives It gives a space. You know when you pot a plant, if you pot it in a in a pot that's too small, you can feel it going, ooh, I'm, you know, it's too tight, and it can't expand and grow. And I think for us also in relationships, both friendship and marriage, um, that we need to always really give it space and feel that there's that space around each person involved in whatever relationship it is that allows them to relax. Respect is the other word. So 
because not earning the respect, but just that respect is given to that person because they're a soul. And that you freely give that. In that environment, then the ability for love, for true love to grow really happens. And then, but it's like you don't want to presume, how will I know it will last forever? You don't <laughs> until you begin engaging it in it. And so that ability to allow that distance uh, really, and again, not, not distant, impersonal, but just like, um, I don't want to know everything that Pranava does. You know, I, I want to know him in a way that's supportive and helpful to him. And so other things that he does, I, I don't want to know about everything. That's his karma, you know. But, and I have mine. And, and what has happened for us is that we both understand that. We're not, I'm not the one just saying that. He also operates in that way as well. And so you have that ability to really foster what is deep love. Now that, that just happens karmically for some people. I always remember my mother saying, she was married, my parents were married for 53 years, and they were characters and they weren't on the path and all of that. But living at home the years that I did and then seeing them afterwards, there were these qualities they just had it naturally. They, they met each other within a six-month period, got married, and then I came along. You know, so it was like a karmic thing that happened there. But I remember her saying to me when I was younger, she said, remember, in a marriage, you have to give a lot of love. <laughs> you have to give and give. And that's what makes it possible. And I watched both of them do that. You know, so anyway... I'd say we're always working from a circle out. And so we have two people come together in friendship or in, in marriage or however. And we have to work from that, that chemistry that's there. Is there the right chemistry to make this happen in the right way where an enduring love can grow out of that connection? That would be my Thank you, Parvati. And for Nayaswami Hriman, how do I prevent my sadhana from getting routine or dry? And how can I expansively handle the dry periods? They like just get wet. <laughs> Since the last uh, topic was relationships, it's an excellent segue because the relationship of our own consciousness with our soul, our ego with our soul, is very much a relationship, a more intimate relationship than any outward one we could possibly have. So we have to have realistic expectations. You come on retreat, perhaps. You take pre-initiation. There are points like a honeymoon, you know, like the beginning of a relationship. You take discipleship when it's wonderful. But you have to be, as Swamiji would say to us, be a long-distance runner. 
understand that your relationship with spirit, with the guru, with your own higher self, however you define it, is something that you're going to have to sustain. Daiva quoted Master saying, what did he say? <laughs> Loyalty is the first law of God. That means I have to stick with what I commit to. Our sadhana, the ideals that we seek to express, the satsanga relationships, the sangha relationships that we have with one another as divine friends, these require consistent application. And therefore, understanding the long picture, we know there are going to be ups and downs. One of the speakers earlier this week, I don't remember who, I almost never do, but I remembered the principle, and it was, uh, it's on a CD recording of Yogananda talking about St. Anthony. It's very charming in his particular voice. St. Anthony, I was always with you. And so, you know, we get tested. And that test comes for most of us who aren't maybe at St. Anthony's stage yet, about to enter the light permanently. Um, it comes with these dry periods, just as it does in a human relationship. We have our ups and downs. So, okay, so what do we do about it? That's the question, I think, as I recall. Spider. Spider, okay. Um, we have a tool belt, as I prefer to call it. Maybe somebody would call it a makeup kit. I'm not familiar with that, but um, I call it a tool belt. And in our tool belt are things like chanting and affirmation and all sorts of things, mantra, Kriya, Hong Sa, energization. There have been times when my mind was like that uh, rebellious horse or whatever it was, it distributed like leaves in a wind, quoting from the chapter in Cosmic Consciousness, where all I could do, all I was willing to do perhaps, was chant. And gradually the mind comes under steady focus and so on. Or sometimes all I could do was energize as because the mind was just in such turmoil. But here we are on retreat, and one of the things to re-energize our sadhana, our spiritual practices, is to do exactly what we're doing, which is to be with, with others. We have to be creative. You know, it's interesting. I don't know how many classes on Hong saw many of us attended with Swamiji or the Om technique or Kriya initiations, but many. When it came to the technique, he was fiercely loyal to the technique and to the practices. And if he had an insight of his own, he made it clear that it was his own insight. But beyond that, as we go deeper into the spine, deeper into our devotion, deeper in our relationship with God and Guru, prana becomes our religion. Prana is self-revealing. Kriya is self-revealing. We come to a point where bit by bit, in little snippets and snatches, the energy within us guides us. And we have to, I mean, the whole point is to become superconscious. That means to be intuitive. And if we have observed that first law of God, of loyalty to our ideals and our practices, then bit by bit that intuition and flow comes. So when those dry periods come, we have that inner sense. 
You know, if you're too much, I, I like to give Virgos a bad time. I, I only later learned from Drupada that I was a Virgo. <laughs> there you have it, right? But those Virgos stick with their routines, ruled by Saturn or some doggone planet like that. Um, they stick, is, there's the Germans and the Italians, right? I mean, that's basically what it is. And so they stick their routine come hell or high water, as the phrase goes. And there's power in that. There is power in that. But there are also dry periods. And with that, we need to pull on our tool belt of affirmation, med, uh, uh, the different techniques, emphasizing different things. So we earn the right, if you will, by our steadfast loyalty to our path, to go from within, to be creative in what we do. Thank you. Ashajib, can we? How can we stay in tune spiritually, and still find ways to blow off steam, have fun, and express creativity? Uh, I'm going to start by repeating some things that were said by Dana Anderson. Many of you know her. She's a great painter. She's the founder of <clears throat> the Academy of Art and Consciousness. Creativity, art, and consciousness, I think. Um, it's been her particular mission from God to work on this side of things. And in one of, I took a, a couple of workshops for, with her, and in the first few minutes, she laid out this thought, which has really uh, been interesting to me. She said, in traditional societies, um, art was just an uh, artistic expression, was just an integrated natural part of life. Um, the, uh, the women painted or beaded their clothes, the men carved their tools, at night everyone would gather around the fire and tell stories, every ritual had a dance, every ritual had a song, people would, it would work together and chant. I mean, it was just always that there was always some kind of creative art form that was happening all the time as a natural part of life. In uh, Swami's book about art, uh, the art, artist is a channel, art is a hidden message. It, he wrote that book seven times, just by the way, but, and changed the title repeatedly. But the final one, I believe, was Art is a Hidden Message. He really makes it seem as if you, in order to become a self-realized saint, you have to first become a creative artist. And when you follow the, the very subtle reasoning in there, it's because the agitation of our feelings, the restlessness of the heart, is what really distracts us from spiritual understanding. At one point, Swamiji said, um, we think about calming the mind when we meditate, but he said it's actually the heart that has to be calmed because reason follows feeling, and the heart is agitated, so the mind is agitated. Um, when I, referring to what I said a little while ago, I thought you just held the mind strong and then just kind of pushed the heart to the side. It took me a while to understand that that's not really, that's not what works. What works is you clear and open the heart, and then the mind automatically follows. Reason follows feeling. Master, you know, he just says three words like that, and then you realize there's a whole path behind it. So Dana is saying, now in our modern culture, art is something, our creative work is done by professionals. And even professionals gradually stop enjoying it because the pressure and the intensity is no fun for them. 
people just don't sing and dance, even in this community. The choir sings. We all know the songs, but we don't walk through the field singing. We don't start and end our meetings usually singing. We're in that huge temple, and, you know, the music is just fantastic. I didn't have the nerve to get up and drag everyone up with me, but I wanted to. I mean, to move to that music was so there to happen, but we're all so inhibited in all of this. And so it's not because we don't want to, and it's not because we've transcended it. It's because we're inhibited. We're not accustomed to just letting our feelings run through us in creative ways. So Dana said, in our culture now, because we've just basically lost creative art as a natural expression in all forms, we have no way to process our feelings. And so what happens is we have two really terrific, terrible ways of doing it. We suppress them or we project them onto others. And that's basically the society we have. Now, I found a note from Swamiji where he talked about the five characteristics of master's path. And the first one was that it's not just for monks and nuns. The second one was education for children. The third one, that art is sadhana and is there for inspiration and not just for entertainment. And just to finish, because you'll ask me otherwise, the next two was... Let's see. Um, yes, the truth is joyous and not just a protest against injustice. <laughs> Isn't that terrific? And that life is for service and not for self-aggrandizement. But it's right there, number three. Master's way of living was completely out of the box in terms of a, a, an avatar. He was a creative artist. And Swami was creative on a level that is almost incomprehensible. But he often talked about the fact that he, he wasn't doing art so that we could present great performances, although there's no harm in doing that. He was doing art so we would, would reclaim that side of ourselves. So when we find ourselves needing to let off steam, it's partly because we haven't been just doing this on an everyday basis. And you know the, the, uh, the program that we gave on Thursday night, which you all enjoyed, and so did we, you know? It was just trying to find out how can we bring the arts into our lives and the, the four women who were dancing, they've been dancing for several years now together and, and they can, you can ask them afterwards. You won't recognize them in their beautiful silver costumes, but you probably know who they are. You know, what you saw was, was several years of effort in which they have gradually become freer and freer and freer so that when we finally did this performance, it was just so obvious they were having so much fun. You know, and that is the point. And, and, you know, they're all good, but I don't think any of them could be in a professional company. You know, they wouldn't be able to perform with the San Francisco Ballet, but they were having so much fun. And every time we'd go to those rehearsals, I would, it was Sunday afternoons, almost always I had given the service 3.30 on Sunday afternoon. I would think, why did I think this was a good idea? <laughs> just a few minutes of being together, you know? And we were just so happy, and we'd just go home three or four hours later unable to sleep. Now, this is not exactly the question that, that Kalidas asked, but this is actually the long-term answer is that I feel that we need to really integrate into our spiritual life. Swami said, I want the music to just be sung all the time. I want people just to burst into song, 
You know, we, we sort of tried that briefly at East-West, bursting into song like this. I'm just going to give you the, the shortest story on this. When Arati was there and they were bursting into song every so often, they were bursting into song over Christmas carols, one of the customers stepped in to join and she started singing a beautiful alto accompaniment. And Arati said, listen to her, she's really good. It was Joan Baez. <laughs> <laughs> I just happened to be shopping that day. <laughs> but why don't, why don't we do it? It's because our feelings are building up inside of us, and we're afraid. Imagine, imagine a world... Free. Good girl. <laughs> I've gone through several titles for my book. The latest one is Swami Kriyananda, Dare to be Different, Dare to be Free. How about that? <laughs> All right, enough. <laughs>
Let's feel for the light and the love and the joy and the possibilities that our masters have brought to this world at this time that expressed through Swami Kriyananda, one person said yes. One person said yes. And out of that, Ananda has become a global movement. What happens if each one of us says yes at that same level, filled with devotion, love, loyalty, and enthusiasm? Let's carry this spiritual renewal week out with us into the world. Let's take a moment. Feel that great power flowing in through our receptivity, our openness, pouring through us as we chant Om and uplifting this planet. Thank you all.